This is episode number 261 with data science writer Andre Liskov. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by our very own data science conference, Data Science Go 2019. There are plenty of data science conferences out there. Data Science Go is not your ordinary data science event. This is a conference dedicated to career advancement. We have three days of immersive talks, panels, and training sessions designed to teach, inspire, and guide you. There's three separate uh, career tracks involved. So whether you're a beginner, a practitioner, or a manager, you can find a career track for you and select the right talks to advance your career. We're expecting 40 speakers, that's 4040 speakers to join us for Data Science Go 2019. And just to give you a taste of what to expect, here are some of the speakers that we had in the previous years. Creator of Makeover Monday, Andy Kriebel. AI thought leader, Ben Taylor. Data science influencer, Randy Lau. Data science mentor, Kristen Kerrer. Founder of Visual Cinnamon, Nadie Bremer, technology futurist Pablos Holman, and many, many more. Uh, this year, we will have over 800 attendees from beginners to data scientists to managers and leaders. So there will be plenty of networking opportunities with our attendees and speakers. And you don't want to miss out on that. That's the best way to grow your data science network and grow your career. And as a bonus, there will be a track for executives. So if you're executive listening to this, check this out. Last year at Data Science Go X, which is our special track for executives, we had key business decision makers from Ellie Mae, Levi Strauss, Dell, Red Bull, and more. So whether you're a beginner, practitioner, manager, or executive, Data Science Go is for you. Data Science Go is happening on the 27th, 28th, 29th of September 2019 in San Diego. Don't miss out. You can get your tickets at www.datasciencego.com. I would personally love to see you there, network with you, and help inspire your career or progress your business into the space of data science. Once again, the website is www.datasciencego.com, and I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And uh, today, I literally just got off the phone with Andrei Liskov, who is a data science writer and a recent graduate who just got a job in data science. We had a fantastic chat. And if you are looking for a job in data science or you are already interviewing or about to go into an interview in data science, you will find this podcast super valuable because Andre shares not only his experience, but also his research and thoughts and ideas in the space of getting a job in data science. And for, it's really valuable coming from somebody who's just recently been through this process himself. You'll find plenty of golden nuggets which will help you get along the way. So here are a couple of examples. So we talked about the trichotomy of control, the importance of referrals, what kind of website Andre has created for his profile for himself and why. 
the importance of a portfolio and how Andre goes about creating his, uh, how Andre taught himself data science, learning how to learn or meta learning and lots and lots of other insights in this space. So if you are looking for a job in data science or you're actively interviewing, this is the podcast for you. Plus, Andre will share a lot of additional resources which you can go and read. So this uh, will be a great overview of those materials. And then in the show notes, you can go and actually dig deeper into them. So with that said, can't wait for you to be part of this conversation. And without further ado, I bring to you Andre Liskov, data science writer. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show with a special guest, Andre Liskov. Andre, how are you going today? I'm doing well. I'm very excited to be on this podcast and to share whatever knowledge I have. That's super exciting. And so Andre is, uh, you are Andre, you are a um, writer and you write for um, Towards Data Science. So you've got some very interesting articles. You've been featured by Forbes, Huffington Post and others. And uh, recently, uh, very excited to learn that you just got a job uh, as a data scientist at Apple, where you're starting next week. And it's something that we'd love to dig into further as well. And yeah, man, thanks for coming on the show. How's uh, you're in Canada mm-hmm. right now, right? Uh, what's it called? A few hours east of Toronto. How's things going over there? Yeah, it's great. I am now an official graduate of a university, which is nice. I got my diploma. So I've been hanging out at my parents' cottage, just enjoying the water and the nature before I moved to the mecca of tech in San Francisco. As, as you had mentioned, I'll be starting at Apple. So it's a nice in-between before I start getting really into coding and the whole tech world. So I, I have lived in San Francisco in the past, so it won't be a t- mm-hmm. completely foreign move for me. Mm-hmm. But the South Bay, where I'll be working in Cupertino, will be a new home. So excited for that. Wow. Man, like I didn't actually realize that you just graduated. Like how when when did you graduate? So I graduated about a month ago. The mm. path to graduation had some twists and turns though. I had actually taken a year off mm-hmm. to work in Los Angeles at a company called Silent, which makes mm-hmm. meals in a bottle, uh, among other mm-hmm. things. Very popular with the hackers and developers, as, as you can imagine. Um, so actually, yeah, I graduated much later um, than some of my other friends. Mm, okay, gotcha. But like, even apart from Soylent, I'm looking at your LinkedIn and it's got so many different like roles that you've been in. You know, like uh, you've, uh, you're have you a founding member at uh, the Kairos Society, you're, you're a growth intern at IBM, you're a data science intern at Pier Street. Like that's pretty impressive for somebody who's just graduated to really have so much uh, work experience under your belt. Like you must have been quite busy during your uni years studying and working at the same time. How was that for you? Yeah, I went into university with the mindset that school is a credential for me, <laughs> as, as bad as that sounds. I had no interest in grad school. I had 
no interest in getting straight A's or anything like that. But I was really interested in getting as many interesting experiences as possible. And I found that university was a great playground for experimentation. And as you mentioned, I, you know, I was able to basically expose myself to all kinds of different roles and experiences. You know, I w had a summer where I worked in Beijing. I had a summer where I worked in Los Angeles. And these experiences were really instrumental for me because it made me realize that the confines of a classroom can only teach you so much. The real, real world often is a much better teacher. And so I kind of optimized for those experiences rather than um, you know, 4.0 GPA or even getting involved in university life. I kind of stopped joining clubs or starting clubs after my second year because I realized it, the payoff was, <laughs> was not as much as, as getting involved outside of university. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So, um, very cool approach very probably different to what many people take and for me like yeah i definitely thought about university okay i gotta get straight a's and i was thinking you know might go because i studied um physics math so i might go into research further after it and you know that didn't happen i uh, moved on to other things but um well, how did you develop that conscious mindset and approach at such a young age you know going into university with that intention that you know like i want to get the experiences over the straight a grades or or over the partying you know some people go into university mm -hmm. to party you know that's another option <laughs> yes yes i definitely uh indulged a bit in my first year with that but afterwards i was much more driven or ambitious outside of that domain and mm -hmm. to answer the former question i think a large part of it was the bookworm in me, I suppose. I, I had read a lot of books when I was in high school and the type of friends I surround myself were also like very driven and ambitious and we loved to just practice like self-development. Like we would have weekly check-ins where we'd set these goals like, you know, I want to go to the gym three times a week or I want to be eating clean this whole week or some variation of like self-development goals. And that I think really helped me see the incremental steps one takes each day towards a goal. And so when I got to university, I, I had that mindset already where I was like, okay, you know, I've seen this formula in the past where I, if I have this goal, I can break it down into daily steps and work towards it slowly. And it might not happen next week, but over time, I can start chipping away and working towards it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, very cool. And, uh, you have an article, actually, that I looked through in on LinkedIn. It's called One Simple Tactic from the Stoics for Setting Better Career Goals. And you talk about mm -hmm. the trichotomy of control. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because it sounds quite in line with what you were just describing about how you set yourself your goals. And for the purposes of our mm -hmm. listeners, I think this can be very powerful for setting goals for your career, whether you are still yet to graduate or you've already graduated a long time ago and you're building a career. I think that like that was a new thing for me. I, I hadn't heard about it, this trichotomy of mm -hmm. philosophy. So yeah, please do share. Yeah, absolutely. So 
the Stoics are these ancient philosophers from back in the Roman times. They have a bunch of really famous philosophers that some people may have heard of, like Seneca, as well as this Roman emperor called Marcus Aurelius, who was this philosopher king, and he wrote this book called Meditations. For one reason or another, Stoicism has become really in vogue in the tech world. You have everyone from like Jack Dorsey to someone like Tim Ferriss reading and promoting the virtues of Stoicism. So that's kind of a quick context on that. The actual uh, tactic that they have employed in the past, or I suppose mental model, is called the trichotomy of control. And the idea is that in life, there's kind of three categories. You have things that you can control, which is basically you just take action on those things because you can control them. Things that you have no control over, which is something you just let go of because you realize there's nothing I can do about this. And then things that you have partial control control over. And the partial control is where the crux of this article is focused on. So I'll give you an example. You are preparing for a race, a 4K run, and you really want to win first place. So this is partially in your control, right? You can focus on your diet, you can focus on your sleep, you can focus on all these uh, levers, but at the end of the day, you know, you don't fully have the ability to win. And so what the Stoics recommend with things they have partial control over is setting internal goals. And so internal goals are basically goals that you have a much tighter control over, whereas external goals, again, are less control. So going back to that racing example, an external goal would be I want to win first place. And an internal goal would be I want to be sleeping at 10 p.m. each day, getting 10 hours of rest. I want to be eating clean drinking lots of water, sticking to my routine. And as you can see, you kind of break out this external goal first place into its subcomponents, right? How do you get to the first place? You have all these different things you can do to get to that um, point. And the idea is that when you do run the race and if you win, it's like, oh, great. You know, these internal goals led me to winning. Amazing. But if you lose, you still are like, oh, great. I still did my internal goals. So I've succeeded in that regard. And so to kind of take this example and bring it to the data science domain and specifically with careers, you can think about, you know, this trope of like working at a fang company, which is like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, or Google. And a lot of people have this, I guess, goal in mind, right? They want to work at this big tech company. They want to experience Silicon Valley and work with amazing perks and really smart colleagues. And that notion of an external goal can create a lot of suffering for someone because first off, these companies, like to get in is, is, is such a luck of the draw. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of getting into one of these top companies is a matter of who's interviewing you and how they're feeling that day. And so by setting yourself up for, for failure that way, by having this external goal, Whereas an internal goal would be, okay, how do I get into a top tech company? All right, you know, I need a good portfolio. I need, you know, a good resume. I need potentially find a referral. Um, and obviously I need to have the technical skills so that I can pass the interview loop. And so once you have those components in mind, you can break it out into daily goals where you might say, okay, 
each day I'm going to spend an hour on algorithms, algorithms and data structures or statistics. And each week I'll talk to three data scientists at one of these companies so that I can start building these relationships so that when I do apply, I have someone that can vouch for me. And so even after you know you go through this whole process and you don't get into this t- top tech company, you still will feel like you um, were able to accomplish your internal goals and you don't, you know, you don't have your hopes dashed. Whereas the alternative is you have your hopes dashed and then you're like, well, shit, what do I do now? I didn't reach my dreams. I feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And even for somebody who's already employed at a company where they love what they do, it could be, I want to have a $10,000 raise by the end of the year, right? That's mm. partially in your control, but not fully, right? You don't know what the poll account, you might not mm. Uh, you know, company policies might be different. You don't know what your manager is thinking. You don't know what the you know revenue of the company might be towards the end of the year. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. as you say, you can set yourself some internal goals. What would be some internal goal examples in this case? So in that case, you want to identify past examples of folks that have gotten raises or promotions. Every company has a different way they reward their performers. Some Base it on, you know, just how collaborative are you? How well do you get along with others? Another might be, did you work on a project that delivered a lot of core value to the company? And so I suppose the first step in this example is figuring out which which lever do you need to pull so that you can make a case for a raise. Um, The more practical route to getting a raise is, is funny enough, interviewing at other companies and getting an offer and then going to your current company and saying, hey, I have this offer competing from another company. Are you going to match it or am I going to have to leave? Um, and so there's a lot of different ways you can get to this. And, and I think that's part of why you want to think about the internal goals because there's lots of different ways you can accomplish your external goal. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so basically kind of what you're saying is have the – what. So there's the what, the why, and the how. You know, the, the Simon Sinek famous start with the why. Uh, I think it's a TED Talk mm-hmm. or presentation. And there's also Tony Robbins, you know, start with the what, then the why, and the how. So basically, have the what in mind. What do you want? You want a promotion. You want to start a company. You want to win a marathon. Um, understand the why. Why you want that. You know, really clearly. Is that mm-hmm. really what you want and why? And then set yourself goals based like and then decide how you're going to get there find a, you know like a, set yourself a what tony robbins for instance calls a massive action plan of how you're going to get to that destination from where you are now and then what you're saying is don't sit don't only reward or don't aim to reward yourself or measure yourself by that final goal that you're going to achieve the what but rather mm-hmm reward yourself for every step along the way, like in, in terms of the Absolutely. how am I going to get there. Mm. Because that way... The journey is often much easy. better than this. Yeah, yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. The journey. It's all about the journey. All right, very cool. And mm-hmm. speaking of interviews, you have another wonderful piece, which, um, congratulations, as you, as you mentioned, it like went off the charts with uh, thousands of views, uh, mastering... It's called the Mastering the Data Science Interview Loop. 
since you've published it, how many views has mm-hmm. it had again? Yes, yeah, so it's almost had 50,000 views, which when I wrote it, I honestly did not think it would go as viral as it did. Otherwise, I would have spent a lot more time editing and polishing it. But <laughs> I, I think with writing, you know, you, you just got to you got to release it. Otherwise, it's never yeah. going to get published. And so I'm, I'm glad it got out to the world and people are finding value out of it. Um, I might do like a version two or some update to it just so that future readers can benefit from that. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like folks that are just starting an interview can find a lot of value out of it because it does break down what you should expect at each step and also gives you some insights on how to best prepare for each stage. Yeah. And so 50,000 views, that's five zero, and you've just published it in January. So it even ha- hasn't even been six months, right? You already have 50,000 yeah. views. Epic, epic. So, um, yeah, interesting piece. And uh, it basically walks you through the steps that one might encounter in a data science interview. And I think it's quite, quite uh, a good overview or quite like a, a useful overview for anybody to keep in mind and where did you get this information from is this how the the large companies do it is this you know did you poll people around like how, how did you compile all this together yeah so this was the synthesis of my own data science interview loop i had started interviewing for a variety of companies at the beginning of my senior year so by something like November, I had done uh, a bunch of different interviews, like 20, 30, something like that. And each interview would proceed to various stages, like the take-home project, the, tech, or the technical interview, the on-site, and obviously the negotiating stage. And so I was able to see each of these different stages and before I even started interviewing I obviously did my own research you know I, I talked to a lot of folks that have data science jobs and I pulled them and asked them you know what does a data science interview look, look like at your company how should I prepare for it the reading online of course is uh, you know the internet has so much knowledge it's it can often often be overwhelming when when you try to sift through everything so uh, the article really was synthesized as a result of my own interview experience and as a way to kind of consolidate this information while it's still fresh. But I also relied on other folks and their experience, whether through personal connections or online. Gotcha. So walk us through it. What are, what are the steps somebody can expect in a data science interview? Loop? Yeah. So you can imagine a data science interview funnel. This, um, this is the idea that, you know, over your data science interview, I guess, month or few months as you're interviewing at these companies, you'll have this pyramid structure that is upside down. And so as you go through this funnel, you'll, you'll inevitably have dropout. Um, you know, some people can, can just keep a, a rectangle structure where they don't fall out anywhere. Uh, most mm-hmm. people, you know, obviously fall out at different stages, which is why the, the pyramid gets smaller as you go through each stage and so the stages i'll give a quick overview you have the coding challenge which is typically a unmoderated 
challenge that asks you to do some pretty simple stuff. It might be like a FizzBuzz question. It might be more complicated with a time series forecasting model. There's a whole range of these coding challenges. And so these are pretty easy to do, obviously. Um, they're kind of just making sure that whoever applies does not um, actually knows what they're doing. Uh, the second step is the HR screen, which is a lot more laid back than uh, um, the subsequent steps. This is usually with a recruiter or some non-technical person, and they're kind of just making sure that you're a normal person. <laughs> as bad as that sounds, there's a lot of people that get to the stage that kind of drop out because they, they're not able to um, communicate effectively or they're unable to answer some question, some really minor technical questions that a recruiter might have, like, you know, what is a Windows function in SQL? These are usually questions that don't, like, if you don't know them, it's, it's hard to get through it. Um, but that, that's kind of the second step. Then you have the technical screen. And the technical screen is usually with engineering or data science folks. And this is the one where you might have an hour of conversations about data structures or algorithms or you know writing SQL queries. I mean, every company has a different way that they do these technical interviews. And so it's important to do your research on um, various websites like Glassdoor or Blind, which might have some insight into how these interviews are conducted and what kind of questions you should expect. Um, even better is asking a recruiter, but they often don't know what is going to be asked, so they might not be able to tell you. Um, but that's kind of the technical screen. And then at some point, you might even have something called a take-home project. And these have actually been pretty popular lately. They are used much more frequently in data science, I think, partly because data science is not like software engineering where you can just ask a bunch of leak code style questions where it's like, you know, reverse a tree or some variation of like an algorithms or data structure question. Um, instead, they'll give you a bunch of data and they'll say, do something interesting with this, or they'll say, build a classifier. Um, there's a lot of these challenges that can take anywhere between like three to 20 hours. Um, and so, I personally love take-home projects. I think they're much better for me to show my skill, but I also recognize that I'm you know, a new grad that has a lot more time on their hands than someone that's working. So that's kind of the take-home project stage. And then you have the on-site. And at the on-site, you will potentially present this take-home project or you'll just be on an interview loop with your future manager, your future coworkers. You might have your skip manager, which is your manager's manager who... Uh, we'll obviously ask different questions. And so at the on-site stage, you want to be asking, you want to be doing research on who's going to be interviewing you um, because that will kind of indicate to you what type of questions will be asked. The non-technical, or sorry, uh, a data scientist with um, kind of a social science background may ask you very different questions from a PhD in computer science that has been doing like deep learning research uh, you know, there's a whole gamut of questions that you'll be potentially asked. So it's good to do due diligence. And then obviously the last stage is negotiation and offer, which at this point, um, you know, there's a lot of different strategies one can take depending on your position. Um, the article obviously gets way more in depth into what I just said, but that's kind of the, the, the quick TLDR.
<laughs> Thanks. Fantastic. And we'll definitely link to the article uh, in the show notes. And um, yeah, so you this, I think it's very valuable again. And you recently yourself have been through interviews and uh, well done for locking in that job that uh, you're starting uh, next week. Did this approach uh, help you yourself? And, you know, like what... What uh, did it help you do differently as opposed to what you wouldn't have done had you not known about this, how, how this funnel breaks down? Yeah, so the funnel is obviously a general, <clears throat> general um, like funnel. Every company does it differently. And so some companies might skip stages altogether. Like the Apple interview, I did not have any coding challenges. Um, I actually went straight to speaking to the hiring manager after which I went straight to the onsite. And then uh, I also had a take home project during mm -hmm. that process. So, you know, very different from my other interview with, uh, there's a insurance bank in New York that I was interviewing for and there was no take home. They had me do like two rounds of Skype interviews and then they flew me to New York and I had like a two hour interview and that was it. <laughs> and and I, uh, mm. you know, very very different experiences. But I think this mental model certainly helped me. Specifically, the stuff about like knowing your interviewers before you get to the onsite or you get to the screen. That is something I did not do in the past, and it certainly bit me. Um, you know, the internet, like I said, has so much information on it, and that includes the people that are interviewing you. So if you're able to do some light research to see who this person is, what school they went to, what their background is, what their duties are, you can really um, tailor your interview prep towards you know being your best self because data science is such a broad field. It's really hard to know everything in depth. And that's why it's mm -hmm. important to do this due diligence. And I think that was really the biggest um, takeaway from the interview loop is like know who you're being interviewed with when you're going into this interview and what is expected. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how much time you put into the preparation and you know, why, why, how can others replicate your success and find these interviews you know, like a breeze at the end of the day rather than a struggle? Yeah, so I'll qualify that statement by saying that at the time I was taking four courses, one of which was like the only course that I actually needed to attend and had any semblance of work in it. The other three were fall intent purposes, quite simple and didn't require a lot of time for me. And so because of that, I had a ton of time to do prep and dive deep. And so... For the take-home project, for example, I put in somewhere between 15 to 20 hours in the span of like five or six days. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. So that's you know, that was just the take-home project. I also was doing some prep on SQL and statistics and Python and machine learning, and so all all included. It was, I mean, I feel like it might have been 40 to 50 hours of prep just in that week before the onsite. And wow. so, yeah, that makes my situation a bit unique for obvious 
purposes. Not everyone has the luxury of that much time on their hands, whether because they're working or um, they're in school with actually like difficult courses. Um, so in my case, I, I, I did walk in feeling like, okay, you know, I've put in a lot of time into this. I know this stuff inside and out. And so I was able to really um, like walk out of the on-site feeling like, you know, this, this went really great. You know, I feel great. I feel like I answered all the questions exactly as I needed to. And it um, ended up leading to a job, which, which, which is also great. Um, but the internal mm-hmm. goal was, was just like, spend the time, do my best, show up. If that doesn't work, then it was, at least it was a good learning experience. Okay. And so I'd like to, uh, like, I love how we're digging into this because I think uh, especially for people who are looking to apply for jobs or about to enter an interview process, this will be very valuable. So I'd like to dig into two other components. So you mentioned you had a referral, somebody who referred you to the company. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a bit about that. Like, was it somebody that you knew a long time ago or did you uh, make this connection recently and, um, and it just like so happened or was it part of your uh, search for a job that you knew that, you know, through a referral, it's easier to get into a business and also any tips, any tips for people who are looking to jump on board a company about referrals because like from the stats out there, I think it's something like astonishing, astonishingly around the, around 70% of hires actually happen through referrals, right? Like not wow. through yeah. applications, but like behind the scenes, not 70%, <laughs> pretty crazy, right? So any tips mm. you can share on that space, like firsthand, this, you know, this is your recent experience would be very appreciated. Yeah, for sure. And to back up that statistic, every internship or job I've had has been through either a referral or I've gotten con- direct contact with the decision maker. Uh, I don't think mm-hmm. I've ever held a job or internship where I applied online and got an interview and got hired that way because you're right. A lot of these jobs are being given to people that are being referred. And oftentimes, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but when you apply to certain jobs, they might already be taken. And the only Mm -hmm. reason this job is on there is because there's some sort of by some sort of uh, rule that one must post a job before they make the hire or like interview people just to say they interviewed people when they already had someone in mind the whole time. And so it's kind of, you know, when I, when you, when you say it out loud, it's kind of like, okay, why, why is this happening? Um, You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on behind the scenes that I'm not going to get into, but um, you know, that is the reality of, of the job market. Um, and so to, to answer the question of, you know, how does one go about getting referrals and being in a, a stronger position when applying companies? Um, so in my case, this was an individual that actually got introduced to me through another friend. And mm-hmm. at the time I was living in Los Angeles, um, this was like a, like a pretty good friend of mine. He had worked at Netflix and he knew someone that was a data scientist at Netflix and they put me in touch with him because I basically just said like, Hey, I'm looking to talk to data scientists. I want to make this transition to this career. I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, to give context at the time I was a business analyst at Soylent. So very heavy on the business end, 
not so much on the technical. And so I was kind of uh, a fish out of water, so to speak. And so I suppose the first step is you, know, you already know, you already have friends. Well, I hope you have friends or family or, or people that you know that you can ask and say like, hey, I'm interested in this field of data science. Do you know anyone that does anything remotely related to this? Um, and just get those warm introductions to these potential people because in my case, my, my friend like definitely went and went above and beyond in vouching for me and the introduction would have been a lot tougher if I didn't have this person doing such a warm introduction. Um, and after that point, he and I would have regular check-ins. You know, I was applying to data science internships and I wanted him to, I want, I got some feedback from him on my resume and then I started the internship and I had this problem in with one of these stakeholders. So I went to my, this mentor, this one, informal mentor of mine and said, Hey, I'm having this issue. And so over time I kind of developed this relationship. Um, and I was never thinking like, Oh, this is going to lead to a job. It was always more like, Oh, I really want to learn. And this is someone that has a lot of experience. And so, uh, at some point it kind of just came up that, you know, Hey, like you're graduating soon. You know, if you need a referral, my team is hiring and that's kind of how it came about. And this is also how I, I got interviews at a couple of other companies as well. I never, well, there were a couple of times where I did ask for direct referrals, but the indirect referrals are often um, a much better method. So I think this kind of long term strategy is, is much likely to yield fruit versus kind of the short term thing that a lot of people have where it's like, all right, I need a job. I'm going to connect with a bunch of people on LinkedIn and I'm going to ask them for a referral. Like that's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very hard to, 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 to yield fruit from that. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, the long-term strategy definitely requires a lot more time. And, uh, thankfully the, the person I connected with was like a very nice, genuine person and was very helpful. So, and so they, they, just to clarify, they already had the connection within, uh, the company that they were able to recruit. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha. exactly. So, it, yeah. The team was already growing. They were looking to hire. He knew that I seemed like a competent enough person where I wouldn't embarrass him in the interview at least. <laughs> and I think that's part of it, right? It's like you got to demonstrate that you're not going to embarrass the person if they do or if they give you a referral. And so yeah. that's an important thing to keep in mind as you're kind of thinking about how can I get a referral. Great advice. So it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I guess it's the hard truth that it's not a quick thing. It's not a quick game and the intention should be different. It shouldn't be, and I agree with that. It shouldn't be that, all right, I need a referral. Who would I connect with so they can refer me? That's like, it, it sounds a bit fishy and it's like going to come off in genuine and, you know, like it might work out one to 2% of the time. But really, I like your advice on, build those mentor-mentee relationships. They're going to serve you much better in the long run. You never know if they'll turn into a referral. They mm-hmm. might, they might not. But the as, as we discussed at the start, right, it's not about the goal, it's about the journey. And along that journey, you will learn tons. And potentially, you know, your mm-hmm. end goal might change along the way as well. You might 
end up wanting to be in a different company or something else. So yeah, mentor mentee relationships really powerful. We've talked about we won't go deep in, deep into this now because like we've talked about this um I've talked about this a couple times on the podcast already and um there's a couple of other things I really want to uh interrogate you a bit more about. <laughs> And, uh, you know, one of those things, for instance, is your website. So, guys, this is really mm. cool. I highly recommend for, you know, people listening. If you're looking for a job in data science or if you are, um, you know, going in for interviews already, check out Andre's, uh, Andre's uh, website, which is simply andreliskov.com. We'll link to it in the show notes as well. And I love what you did here. It's very simple. Uh, very straight to the point, talks about you, has your photo, has your resume. So by the way, guys, if you want a really cool resume, I like it how it's one page resume. So you can get Andre's resume, <laughs> use it as a template, use it, copy that. Um, and, and then you have your projects, you have, you know, some links to, you know, like code dashboards and things like that. Really cool. And I think, you know, in your description of the interview cycle that would really help you out with that whole mm -hmm. um, hr screening right so when they're like who is andre liskov and they type in your name in google and this thing perps up number one and now they all of a sudden they know that you're not just some person randomly applying you're pretty serious about what you do you have some mm -hmm. projects you have a portfolio up there tell us about that like first of all how did you come up with this idea to put everything up uh, and uh, you know what what triggered that for you and also how has it helped you in the, your job application process? Yeah, absolutely. I think the personal websites are very important for the exact reason you said, where usually when before people interview you, they're going to Google you. And you want the first page results to be stuff that is about you and not like random articles or random things that are not related to you. And obviously people that have common names, it's kind of hard for you to get top results in, in Google. Likely mine is somewhat unique. And so usually if you type my name, you will see like my site or my LinkedIn or some online presence I have. And so the personal site of mine actually has gone through a lot of different iterations. The, I remember the first one was like so complicated. There were so many buttons and things and content. And I've really embraced the minimalist kind of approach where I think about how can I just get the bare content that I need to get across who I am and what I've done. And, uh, and so right now, <clears throat> when you land on my site, it features my writing because that's kind of what I'm focusing on and I want people to read and learn more about. Whereas in previous iterations, it might have like a biography of me and what I've done and accomplishments and all this stuff. And that was necessary when I was looking for a job because I wanted people to like Google, like recruiters or interviewers when they Google me, they want to see this run down. And so that's what you would find on my website. Now that I have a job, my personal site has kind of shifted in its purpose. Now it's more focused on promoting my content, my writing and um, kind of building a readership. And so that website is actually a template as well from um i forget what the website is but if you google like website templates like html css websites you'll find plenty of, of sites and like, i personally hate web development i actually started programming because of web development and i stopped 
because I was like, is this what programming is? Just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't go back to programming for like two years because I was so demotivated by like the boringness of front-end development. So I, I have no qualms about you know purchasing a template and then editing into my satisfaction. And so um, for those listeners that are not like CSS wizards, have no fear. There's plenty of templates you can buy online. And I think the one I have on my site might've been like five or $10. So definitely affordable. And yeah, it's, it's really helped. I think in interviews, I actually had my manager at my internship where I was a data science intern, talk about how he shared my site with uh, his coworkers and like got their thoughts on me before they made a decision and like shared my projects with them. And that really helped, I think, when they were deciding on whether to bring me on. So, yeah, personal website, great investment, takes a weekend to put together, if that, maybe even like a day. Uh, I would definitely invest in it if you're looking to increase your chances of getting hired. For sure. And some of these templates, you don't even have to code. It's like just drag and drop, very simple stuff. Yeah, yeah, so there's, uh, I know there's like... Squarespace and stuff, they have um, drag and drop templates. Um, this mm-hmm. one is actually uh, totally like HTML, CSS code. And you just mm-hmm. go into your editor and you edit the HTML and it updates. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little little bit more intensive than say like a Squarespace or a Wix or any number of ones. So yeah, mm-hmm. if you don't even want to touch any code, you can just do drag and drop. And that is also perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. And you know, even... Even if you have to code a bit, you know, why not <laughs> for practice, <laughs> put, put that on your resume that you can code websites a bit as well. Exactly. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And speaking of, you know, like, I think that's, that's a good rundown of data science, like interview process. And first of all, thank you very much for like sharing your journey. Is there anything you would add, like any... I don't know, gems of insights that we haven't touched upon that might help somebody out who's about to go into an interview or is applying you know, for jobs right now. Yeah, so the first thing to do is to define the role that you're looking to get and break out the skills and attributes that consist of that role particularly with data science, because it's such a broad field, as I had mentioned before, it's really tough to prepare for like a data science interview. And so Airbnb came out with a nice, uh, I guess, heuristic or way to partition their data scientists, which was algorithms, analytics, and inference. So with algorithms, these are data scientists that are typically deeper into building models, they're reading research papers, they're implementing the latest and the greatest. And then you have analytics, which is more of the uh, working with business stakeholders, SQL, uh, some, some minor stats potentially. And then you have inference, which is much heavier on the stats. And this is typically where folks with social science backgrounds will find themselves. So someone with like an econ background might do very well in the inference data science category. And so, um, you know, if you're just starting out looking for jobs, you think data science is cool and you want to learn more about it, um, I would really suggest you 
identify one of these areas and go deep because, you know, I've certainly fallen in this trap when I was just starting out. I signed up for all these different MOOCs, these massively online open classrooms. I bought all these books and I was just drowning in content. And it wasn't until I kind of broke out, you know, what is my value proposition and how do I deepen it by preparing for that specific parts that I was able to land jobs and not, you know, feel like I'm drowning in content. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. That's wonderful advice. So indeed, data science is very broad. There's lots of roles, you know, from natural language processing to modeling to uh, deep learning, uh, reinforcement learning. There's lots of different industries you could get into. Plenty of things. So define where you want to go first. And this actually brings us quite mm -hmm. nicely to the next question I wanted to ask you. Um, how did you teach yourself data science? Because you you mentioned at some point that you like were asking around what data science is with your, your friends and colleagues and how to get into the space. So why did you want to get into it? And how did you teach yourself? Yeah, so I'll answer the why first, obviously, and then how I approach learning. So at the time, as I was mentioning, I was a business analyst at Soylent. And I felt like I wanted to go and develop deep expertise. I think at the time I had read like deep work by Cal Newport and I was like, oh man, like as in my role, I'm not really getting as much of that deep work. And so when I went back to school, I was studying computer science now instead of Bachelor of Commerce that I was in originally. And as a result, you know, I, I kind of had this background of business and now I'm doing this computer science degree. And I knew I didn't want to completely throw away all this business background that I've built up. So I, I didn't want to be like a back-end engineer or front-end engineer or anything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, but there was this kind of field of data science, which at the time, and I think now still, is a nice intersection of a variety of disciplines, one of which is business. So being able to add business value, being able to communicate work with business stakeholders, I felt like I had that skill developed, whereas the technical was, was much less developed. And so once I identified that weakness, I set about, you know, obviously recidifying that situation and, and deepening that expertise. And so in my case, I taught myself through this deep immersion learning technique, um, which basically consisted of trying to hit as many sources of knowledge as possible so that I'm kind of like <laughs> surrounded by data science and data and programming. And so I first and foremost was obviously taking computer science classes. So anything that had data in it, I would take it, statistics, databases, all that. I would want to take that, take those classes. Uh, second thing I did was projects. So this is Probably the best way I found to teach myself data science was um, building various projects. In my case, I built a dashboard that visualized data from my life and allowed me to understand what was going on, allowed me to work with Flask, build APIs, build a database, taught me a lot of different skills. Um, Kegel competitions, of course, are also a great way to learn through project-based learning. Um, second thing was uh, 
basically online classrooms that were more focused on practice rather than theory. So DataQuest, for example, uh, is an online website that teaches you data science, so step-by-step. -step. It's an interactive development environment, very similar to Code Academy, where you kind of have these different challenges and you go about completing them and working your way towards being more competent. Um, books, you know, there's a whole list of books I read. Um, I actually have a, a, a list that you'll be able to add in the show notes of books I read. Everything from, you know, like a biography of Alan Turing to uh, weapons of math destruction, books on statistics, textbooks. There's kind of a whole gamut of books. Uh, you got podcasts, podcasts such as this, Data Skeptic, Learning Machines. I mean, there's there's so many resources, um, communities. There were some Slack communities that I was a part of where I could ask questions. And uh, the last one was movies and TV shows. So, uh, you know, shows like my or movies like Minority Report, her TV shows like Black Mirror, um, movies like Ex Machina. These were were all ways that I got deep into the whole data science slash machine learning space. And as a result, I was able to accelerate my learning because I'd be learning about, you know, a specific context, specific topic in one domain, say a book, and then I'd also see it in a YouTube video. And this really helped, I think, accelerate and reinforce my learning. And uh, funny enough, I wrote about this, how I taught myself data science on Quora, so I'll, I'll share that link with, uh, with you guys and you can dive deeper into that. Wow, fantastic. What a holistic approach to learning data science. I've never heard that <laughs> one about movies and TV shows. That's really cool. What was your main takeaway from Black Mirror in terms of data science? Oh, yeah. So the, as, as you know, the Black Mirror is, is the dystopian um, things that can happen in the future if we abuse certain technologies. The shows or the episodes really were more about getting me to think about some of the implications of these algorithms that are built. Probably the most yeah. impactful one was where everybody was rating everyone in real time. Uh, like uh, one of the first ones, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That one was like, okay, yeah, I can, I can see this happening. And in fact, it is happening in places yeah. like China. So Yeah, it's already close. Yeah. Oh man, like I think I I like they had uh, White Christmas. That was a really mm -hmm. powerful episode for me. Mm -hmm. Really, mm -hmm. they're all deep and dark, but that was cool. <laughs> or the one with the the augmented reality horror stories. That was also pretty insane. Yes. Uh, they have a new show mm -hmm. now on Netflix called um, Love, Death, and Robots. Have you seen that one? Hmm. I heard about it. My friend was telling me, but I, I haven't had a chance to check it out. What is it about? It's, it's like a it's similar, right? It's kind. Of, yeah, similar, but it's like it's shorter, so Black Mirror can go like seriously. Those episodes can be like one and a half hours long, like a proper movie. Yeah. But uh, Love, Death, and Robots are shorter, like between like eight to maybe up to twenty minutes max, maybe like twelve, mm -hmm. fifteen on average. And mm -hmm. uh, they're all animated, so they're all like different types of animation. So they're all not related at all. So one might be a cartoon animation, one might be three D animation, so. And yeah, similar concept. So they kind of like pack that same idea as in Black Mirror, but into a shorter, more mm. like nicely presented, very quick um, rundown. And you're like, oh, cool. I like that mm -hmm. idea or that one I don't. So you kind of like, if you don't like it, you've only spent eight to 12 minutes on it, but they're pretty mm. cool. You know, some of them are also very deep. And yeah, 
nice nice show yeah. as well, also on Netflix. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I think part of watching this media is just like getting yourself psyched on data science and machine learning and being like, this is the, sh- the stuff that can happen if over time people apply themselves in this direction. You know, this is a vision mm-hmm. that can be realized, some being dystopian and some being utopian. So you want to just see the breadth of ideas. And for me, a lot of these movies and, and shows just got me excited about participating yeah. in, in this field. Yeah. And it's kind of like also, it's interesting you mentioned that, like, because watching them, like, you when you watch them, for our listeners, try to, like, for any show you watch that has technology involved, try to think of, like, how is data working in the background? You know, how is data mm-hmm. working in that uh, self navigating, I know, spaceship or in that. Uh, like weapon that they're using or in that uh, space facial recognition software what role is data playing mm-hmm. i think that that can be a really cool way of watching these and getting more inspiration for real life as you say hopefully not dystopian but more utopian ideas that we can implement yeah absolutely awesome well andre thanks so much for coming on the show this brings us to the end of the podcast being a great pleasure to chat and uh, dive into your story i'm sure it's going to help a lot of people before i let you go can you give us a quick um i don't know overview of locations online where people can follow you or get in touch for some more advice or just see where your career takes you from here yeah for sure so if you're interested in reading some of my stuff online you can follow me on medium so just my last name and first name so Liskov andre and then I also write on Cora. I'm on LinkedIn all over the interwebs. So if you search for my name, you should have some stuff pop up. Search Andre, whatever social media you're looking at, and something should come up. Perfect, perfect. And uh, one final question for you today. Uh, we'll, of course, link to all those in the show notes. And the final question is, uh, do you have a book that you can recommend to our listeners that you know had the most impact on your career? Yeah, so... I think with data science, again, because it's such a uh, broad field, there's a lot of books and domains that one can read and recommend. In my case, the domain of meta-learning, so learning how to learn, is perhaps the most important, um, not just for me, but I think for all data scientists, because the field is growing so quickly and there's so many new developments, you really do need to develop a love for learning and also implement strategies that are good for retaining information and so with that in mind there's there's this book i read a while back called make it stick the science of successful learning and so this book basically outlines the latest in the research on effective learning and packages in a really nice storytelling method that uh, i really enjoyed um and again another bit of a plug uh, i uh, i kind of wrote a a post on Medium talking about this, this learning how to learn, and it's basically a clip notes of this book among other books I read. So uh, make it stick. That is the book I will stick with. Very cool, very cool. Um, and speaking of plugs, uh, we didn't have time to talk about your Data Minds series, but for our listeners out there, so Andre is doing interviews with data scientists, which you might find interesting and they're in written form as opposed to what you're hearing now, a podcast. 
so you might want to check that out. We'll also link to that in the show notes. And uh, sounds like you've got some very interesting guests coming on to data mines as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can awesome. read more about it on Medium. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Well, on that note, Andre, once again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great chat and good luck with your new job at Apple. I'm sure you're going to smash it and uh, like probably learn heaps while you're there as well. Yeah, thank you very much. I found this to be great, really, uh, really fun time. So hopefully I'll have a chance to come back again maybe a year from now when I've uh, <laughs> gone through the ropes of this new job. Sounds like a plan. All right, take care, man. Yeah, you too. Bye. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Super Data Science Show and our conversation with Andre and you got some valuable takeaways from here. For me, probably the most impactful was the trichotomy of control, where things break into three categories, where you can control things that you can control, things that you somewhat can control, things that you can't control at all, and how to go about setting your personal and professional goals with that philosophy in mind. Uh, as always, you can get the show notes at www.superdatascience.com slash 261, where you'll also get the URL to Andre's LinkedIn and other um, areas online where you can find him on the social media and websites where you can get in touch, connect and follow his career. So there you have it. Best of luck with your interviews if you are going into them or with uh, your job hunts and job searches. Remember all the things that we talked about here and create a portfolio. Make sure that you are building your network, building connections and actually strengthening your online presence to make some of those steps that Andre listed in his cycle of uh, interviewing for data science and uh, the whole data science recruiting process. You make sure that those steps are uh, simplified for you and that your interviews are brief. On that note, thank you so much for being here. Make sure to share this podcast with anybody else who might be interviewing for a data science role or, or looking for data science jobs. This might help them out. And I'll see you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.